Welcome to episode 35 of the Talentopoly podcast, How a Developer Can Learn to Design. I'm your host, Jared Brown, and as always, I'm joined by my intrepid co-host, Brandon Corbin. Hello, everybody. I thought I'd change it up a little bit there. Thank, thank you. Throw I, you I, a curveball. I, uh, yes, it totally did. <laughs> and we're joined by our guest, Justin Belcher. Hey, Justin. Hey, guys. How's it going? So before we get into what we're drinking, I have a brief announcement to make. The, uh, the oft-mentioned, often-mentioned job board for Talentopoly is finally going to launch tomorrow. I'm really excited about this. We got a couple of initial partners, so we're going to launch with about uh, 10 jobs on there. So that should be kind of cool. And uh, so check that out and let me know what you think. Always give me feedback on that and we can continue to iterate. And we will, of course, talk about it. I'm sure it'll be the big topic in the next town hall chat that we have, which is coming up on Wednesday. So uh, check that out. We need sound effects. Sound effects. Like what need, sort dude, of sound I'm, effects? Okay, so I think what we do next time is I'm going to have my, my other MacBook I've got. I'm going to plug it in. We're going to call in and I'm going to pump all the audio out so I can have a sound effects thing like we do that, you know, <laughs> because you made the announcements or the applauding and stuff. We could totally do that. That'd be amazing. Uh, have right. you ever played with soundboards, like celebrity soundboards? Yeah, see, that's what we could do. I could just oh, have that killer. sitting here and pumping all that audio straight to the other. Uh, yeah, we could totally do it. All right, totally. we're do that. All right, that'll I'll... happen in a future one because we're just that professional. Hell yes. All right, Brandon, what are you drinking? Uh, this is deja vu. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm drinking Fire Road, which is a killer, uh, cheap uh sauvignon blanc and i don't know what's uh, it's from new zealand those those new zids zeds are phenomenal at making uh, uh this kiwis, kind of wine right? that's what they're uh, yeah kiwi i think whatever yeah. uh so that doesn't make any sense to me um, make do, sense. that is right though right justin people from new zealand you call them kiwi i don't know if that's a bad what what is justin is justin like the the if the aforementioned expert on <laughs> kiwi i'm gonna cautiously distance myself from this just in case that it is some sort of a slur <laughs> yeah true uh yeah so it's check it out it's great it's 14 bucks um and it's good enough that the the wife will start to drink it i hope nice excellent well, I, uh, I, I've kind of stopped my string of uh, beers from the Sam's Club variety packs, and I went out and got an actual like good craft beer to drink on this podcast. Uh, it's Tank 7 Farmhouse Ale. It's from Boulevard Brewing Company in Kansas City, Missouri, and it is, uh, it's a Belgian, so it's 8% alcohol. comes in this super cool bottle, which looks like a wine bottle, but it's the size of like a normal beer bottle. So I think that just adds a certain element to it that I like. But it, it's real tasty. I highly recommend it. Yummy. Justin, Justin what are you drinking? Uh, tonight I got a Ska Brewing Company, Modus Operandi. That's a uh, Indian Pale Ale. Pretty tasty. Those Colorado guys tend to know what they're doing. So I like this one a lot. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. All right. Before we jump right into our topic here, uh, I'm really interested to hear how you got started in the fields of design and development because you actually straddle both of these fields. You do both of them, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, most of my background is in art and drawing. So I kind of got my start studying watercolor and spent a lot of time growing up and through high school, mainly doing painting and sketching. Um, got really interested in the digital thing when that started getting, you know, a little bit more viable. I remember early on I was doing stuff like ANSI graphics for bulletin boards and like old Windows 95 icons and stuff like that. So, you know, back in the heydays of, of Photoshop early on, I, I think that was 
a great springboard for me. But then when I went to college, uh, I'd always liked computers a lot. So I pursued computer science as my college. Uh, when I went to grad school, you know, kind of a lot of my free time was spent doing stuff on the web and particularly doing design work. So uh, for graduate dude studies, I did mostly usability stuff, UI. And uh, now I kind of find myself a little bit more on the design side. But uh, now that front-end development's matured quite a bit, I like that quite a bit too. What is it about front-end development that get, like, makes you passionate about it? Well, you know, in college, most of my training was pretty, you know, hardcore uh, programming. And just me being such a visual guy, I really like doing stuff that's kind of immediately feedback. So, you know, I kind of gravitated towards UI design and UI development when I was doing software development. So front-end's kind of an extension of that, just getting that, you know, getting able to manipulate things directly on the page and get that instant feedback. And, and I really like that aspect of it quite a bit. Something we have debated a couple of times, Brandon and I on the podcast, uh, is whether designers should be good at front end development. If that, do you think that is a necessary, you know, like that you need to have that talent nowadays as well, or can you still be a pure designer? You know, I, I think, you know, I've seen debates both for and against should designers code. And I tend to be in the camp of they should, yeah. uh, just because I feel like, you know, we can't, as designers, say, like, you need this broad perspective to be a good designer and then say, oh, but we don't need to code, you know? I just feel like so yeah, much yeah. about totally. really informs some of the choices that I make in design. I think there's room for the pure design guy, you know, if there's someone who's just so awesome at making like just really compelling visual communication and that's just what they nail out of the park every time, you know, that that's a valuable guy to have on your team. But I think for a well-rounded designer, it just helps to have that perspective. Awesome. And you've been playing around with Backbone JS a little bit, right? Yeah. I mean, there's like, you know, everybody's making an MVC framework for JavaScript these days, but, you know, having went through the particular or kind of like the common JavaScript path most of us t took of, you know, hacking around on IE and then doing jQuery and then, you know, structuring jQuery code. Now that it's kind of matured to the point where you can actually have models that update the UI and, you know, the server and stuff like that, it's just, it's really nice to have that binding on the front end. I find that my code's just so much more clean when I'm using stuff like that. And I don't, it'll be hard to go back if I get projects that don't do that type of development on the front end. So we're going to be talking about design a lot during this topic. Uh, what constitutes design? How are we going to define design for this? Yeah, that's, that's always a great question because it's just it's so broad. Um, I think it's probably useful to talk about you know interface design and web design specifically, um, just because I think that's something that naturally bridges over from development. You know, obviously, design is is such a universal kind of approach to uh, combining content and form and things like that, that you can apply it to a lot of different mediums. But I think for today's discussion, uh, we'll talk kind of broadly about some of the high-level constructs of design. But really what we're talking about is, you know, how can you apply this to some of the web development you're doing? How can you apply this to application development on mobile devices, things like that? I have a, a whole bunch of questions for you because I – I fall into the developer camp that drools over good design and I, I can never do good design myself. So, you know, but I've like, I would love to be able to do it. So this topic has been something that is, I've thought about this for a long, long time. And, and how do I get to learn how to be a good designer? But before we even get into that, how, 
like how do you see design like how does it really help you to be a designer and a developer do you feel like having had done both now that maybe it's held you back in one of the fields like if you had focused on just one you would have been that more much more excellent or do you are you really happy with where you you are now having an even balance between the two <laughs> well i think i'd have a lot more free time if i didn't try to stay so current on both um but yeah, I mean, from my vantage, it's it's so great to have both advantages because there's so, I mean, I think one of the common misconceptions is that um, design is just about ornamentation. I know a lot of my developer friends kind of think of it that way. You know, it's just about the visuals. It's just about making things look pretty. But really, when you talk to, you know, the more seasoned designers, it's a lot more about problem solving. So, you know, there's there's a repeatable analytical process that goes with good design. And yeah, there's, you know, the, the aesthetic, you know, the novel component and the things of that, but really at the core, both practices of development and design are really, they share a lot between each other, you know? Um, so I think that developers, just because of the backgrounds in problem solving and analytical thought, I mean, developers have a lot of the tools that make yourself a good designer. It's just getting over that hump of both, you know, how do I refine my taste and things like that? And then, just the practical thing of how do I execute things and have it turn out the way I want it to look, you know? What do you think, Brandon? Do you think design has a large scientific component to it or is it mainly artistic in your opinion? No, I definitely think there, I, I think it's a, everything's going to be a balance, right? Um, that, that without that artistic, without that crazy son of a bitch, who's going to go out there and just push the boundaries so far. Um, uh, you know, you, we wouldn't have the things that we have now. So I, I do think it's that real balance that you have this one guy who's just completely artsy, like pushing, you know, usability just goes out the window, but visually he just tries to go, you know, hogs wild. Then you have the people on the other spectrum who are really meticulous, but then they can start testing these crazy ideas, find what works, what find what doesn't work and that hopefully, you know, there's a happy medium. So, uh, uh, four is my answer. I don't even remember what I was answering. <laughs> 42 is the answer. <laughs> 42. <laughs> what do you guys think of, uh, have you heard this, the now infamous story about Marissa Meyer, I think mayor Meyer, uh, at Google who yeah, yeah. to figure out what shade of blue was the right shade of blue and some design. She tried 42. She had them do a B tests of 42 different shades. Is that is that a good way to design ever? Dude, I hate that. I hate that. Yep. But so you need to have some you got to have But it fucking com- works. So for color palettes though, it, so you're saying it works. You yes. think that that is I, a superior uh, dude, method to just having somebody with a good eye? No, 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 no. I I think it's uh, it, and it, and I you can't repeat it, right? It's totally based on what people are used to with the Google brand, but if they can sit there and they can test this blue and prove quantifiably that yes we get more conversions with this blue then it works right but that's not art that's not that's not taking the chances that what really defines art which is take you know going out and breaking outside of the molds of what is currently confined so uh, they let an algorithm decide that for them and you know maybe they do come up with something creative i don't know but uh so i hate it but it works and it generates revenue Right. And if I guess if you have the type of traffic that they have, you can you can do tests like that. Exactly. The average person. Yeah, yeah. No, no. The average dude, even if you're getting, you know, a thousand people to your site, it's still it would still be hard to really be able to quantify those numbers. Yeah, it would take a year or two easily. And I think too, you know, when you're when you're talking about corporate design, there's a lot of stakeholders that go into those choices and a lot of people that 
aren't as vested in the design process, it's nice to be able to say like, oh, look, you know, we tested all this stuff and here's, you know, some quantitative numbers that support it. Because, you know, in companies like Apple that I think are a lot more successful in a lot of those things, it just takes a guy at the helm who has taste and just pounding the desk and saying, nope, it's going to be this blue and everyone's going to deal with that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. So no design by committee. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Dude, that is the worst possible. Uh, yeah, that's awful. Yeah, I've, I've been a part of those types of projects, and they don't turn out well. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So help me out here. I'm a developer, and I, I really don't I, – I think I have a good eye. Like, you know, I look at magazine layouts, and I look at websites, and, you know, I feel like I have the ability to sense and you know when design is good versus bad. You know, like you see a pretty girl versus an ugly girl. You know, you hey, you've got hey, that, hey, hey, you've got that ability. Good lord, you've got that ability to distinguish, right? So I have that ability. Why can I like? Let's take. Let's just focus on color palettes, okay? How can I get better at deciding a good color palette for a website I'm about to build? I am terrible at this. How can I get better at that? Well, you know, practically. You could spend some time looking at color theory. You know, you could get kind of the research angle of it and learn about, you know, color harmonies. You can do tools where you take, you know, an aesthetically pleasing image that you like and kind of pick uh, harmonious colors out of that. But uh, really, I think one of the best things you can do is just immersing yourself in harmonious colors and kind of looking at it, you know, in less of a tips and trick, here's how you do it way, and just kind of training your eye a little bit better to spot you know, why does this color seem to work with that? And I think a lot of it ends up too, because all the colors are kind of composite of, of you know, subcomponents and stuff like that. A lot of the harmonious colors end up having, you know, similar kind of temperatures and hues in them that make them harmonious. So kind of acknowledging like, oh, well, that blue is a little bit more reddish than the other way. And seeing how that fits in with other colors is a good way to start. How do Can, you guys choose your colors? Are you just using a color picker and like, boom, there it is, just like picking it out of the whole mess of color and, and getting good ones? Uh, no, my me, no, never. Uh, let, let, I want to answer. I, I want to offer another, a different answer though, um, because because everything that you know that Justin just described is you know the color theory and everything. So I went to through two years uh, at Columbus College of Art and Design for color theory. And I suck at color, right? <laughs> I suck at color. Fundamentally, there's something in my brain that doesn't that doesn't give me afford me the the eye that Justin has for color. Um, so I, I think you could take a developer and you could send you could have him researching color theory until he's fucking blue in the face, <laughs> and he's still going to be able to pick really shitty colors and not understand why they don't look great. Uh, so so my answer is to copy somebody else. To copy Justin is my answer. So you go and you look at all of Justin's shit on Dribbble, and you say, I like that, and I'm stealing it. And you take his color choices, and boom, you're on your way. So you just start copying some, copying some images and whip out the eyedropper, and Exactly. Okay. You co everybody copy Justin, and you'll do fine. So I don't feel too bad, because that is kind of my like only method at the moment, is actually exactly what you just described. I'm I'm definitely a dribble whore. That the few times I actually do pick colors, it's it's from some dribble shots. Now, just I mean, a, a purist designer might not. What do you think, Justin? <laughs> no, I think this. I mean, nobody gets to any level of competency without just copying everything around you. I mean, that's kind of that's how you learn because 
it's it's hard to look at something and just you know there's no divine inspiration that tells you what colors to pick and you know you're, when you're tying designs into problems it's easy to kind of fall upon you know the right design or at least you know something that's trying to serve the overall problem you're trying to solve but at the same time when you're talking about things like color and things like that um it just takes a long time to get to the point and you may never get to the point where you know you just nail stuff right off the start a lot of it's you just you know you fall back on what you've done before you fall on what's inspiring you currently and you know by inspiring i do mean you know pulling out the dropper and seeing what people are doing <laughs> All right, so so my question is, and and I'm sorry, I'm I'm gonna stumble here. <laughs> I, I thought I had it all planned out, but we got cut off, and so. Uh, but basically, so I as I'm I'm 36 now, and I find that all of my designs end up being uh, the same, right? And it's just driving me crazy, and I see it in in ad agencies with you know people who are getting older there. How how do you remain? And I guess it's fresh, but that's such a like a stupid word. Uh, I don't know. I don't even have any words for it. But how do we make it so we can continually get inspirational without producing the same shit over and over again so i think one aspect of that is finally getting to a point with your tools to where you've mastered them because uh, i know early on you know a lot of design is about technique you know learn you know read smashing magazine and figure out how to make a button look like that or an icon look like that um, once you get to the point where what you're seeing for what you're trying to create is pretty easily achievable with the tools you have i mean i think that helps a lot because um, if you don't do that, a lot of what you'll do is just, well, I know this one way to make this button look like that, so I'm going to do that a lot. Um, but I think the second part of that and probably the more important part of that is to just look for inspiration outside of design. You know, If all you ever do is look at dribble, everything you make is going to look like dribble. If all you ever do is kind of look at Windows 8 comps, that's what your stuff's going to look like too. You know, and I even think looking outside of design, period, is really helpful. You know, what about automotive design is beautiful or fashion, industrial design, architecture, all that stuff. You know, I mean, the world around us is just so full of inspiration, especially aesthetically, that bringing that kind of perspective back to the choices you're making when you design really helps out in a way that I think looking at what's the latest and greatest app design doesn't. Hey, so, so let me ask you a question then, uh, a follow-up question. What do you think w was going through the designer's head who created the Aztec? I think it's Pontiac. Did Pontiac make the Aztec? Amazing. I don't know who made it, but I love this question. Right. So, so how, how, I, I every day I think about this every time I see that car. <laughs> I wake it, up in the morning. It, I wake up it. and I'm like, what in the hell happened when they presented this car? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, Justin? That car? I, what would I, I think you know they got up there, they had A B tested sixty-five shapes of cars, and for some reason on that day the square boxy whatever thing is the one that won. God, so that's dude, what they went. It, it is awful. You know, the only thing that's good that's come out of Aztec is that it's what Walter White drove on on Breaking Bad. Um, <laughs> but my God, that's an ugly fucking. I car. love this Sorry. tangent. <laughs> Sorry. Continue, please. Yeah, so, that's kind of a weird focus group for sure. <laughs> I think I think the focus group was fucking with them. <laughs> I, that's the only that's the only logical. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. No, I want it more. Like, I want more angles. It was a I competitor's focus angles. group. <laughs> Jeez. It's their new tactics. Yeah, just seeing how bad they control everybody pretty much. So 
I, I need a little bit more help here. We talked about color palettes a little bit. I'm this developer that at times I don't have money to hire a designer for small projects or, you know, I want to try, like, I really want to try to get good at design myself. And I don't, I really don't know where to start. I mean, you, you guys talked about using an eyedropper on some of the shots that I like on Dribble, and I kind of do that already. I check out this website called Color Lovers. Have you guys seen that site? Mm-hmm. And I look at those swatches that they have up on Color Lovers, and to me, they I don't even think those look good. Like, <laughs> most of the featured ones, to me, don't look good at all. Like, I, I'd much rather look at that. Maybe it's because I can't see these basic blocks of colors actually used in the design. I'm not like, maybe that's the part that I'm missing because yes, that, that part of your brain is broken. <laughs> probably because if I look at a design, like here's the, here's the thing that gets me though. If I look at a site, you know, like what I was talking about a minute ago, I look at a site and I can say, yeah, that looks really good or that doesn't. And I'll, you guys will probably be in, in agreement with me. Right. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I probably have that ability to look at something and tell, why can I not create? What is the missing link there that designers seem to have, but develop, many developers don't seem to have? Or we can't design our way out of a paper bag. And left and right, baby. It's just two, <laughs> it's just two different friggin' halves of the brain. You know, you guys are all are left, what, left-brained, and you focus with that, and so color and all that doesn't really apply. And there's nothing wrong with that. Well, but they're like, all right, if I'm working on, let's say, just a $3,000 project, and that's going to be just paying for the programming, but it's got to have some basic designs. Like an apartment search site is one that I did a couple of years ago, and there wasn't budget to hire a designer. Yeah, so, well, you know what my answer is going to be, and that? I'm sure my fucking, you got bootstrap. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got you got you got a bunch of different bootstraps bootstrap out there. Bootstrap only gets you so far. No, you, my, no, my God, I can't believe the 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 shamelessness that people have built entire applications now with Bootstrap and didn't change a damn thing. But it doesn't seem like it's a complete theme to me. I mean, it's just that grid bait. You know, it looks like sketch sketch paper or graphing paper type of background that fades from top to bottom. You've got the black bar at the top. You've got nice yeah. blue buttons. Well, when you start getting into the wells and you start getting into the the navigation stuff and you start really actually using it, uh, I mean, you can you could build out a pretty robust site with just using that stuff. And and again, it passes it passes the sniff test, right? You don't look like a total asshole where, <laughs> you know, like some of these websites that launch and it's like, "Oh my god, you know, we know it's it's drag and drop from dot, you know, from Visual Studio." And and so this at least this at least gets you a little far. Again, change the color of the black bar and of the buttons and and you'll be able to say hey look we launched and then you can go hire justin and have him come in and have him just massage the hell out of it and do all the fine detail work of like you know a, the, an artistic uh, fine detailed carpenter does uh, you, so don't waste your time well i think if i were to actually answer that um hey wait a minute <laughs> <I love it. laughs> We're going to have Justin on more often. (laughs) No, but I mean, part part of the problem is design is as complex as development. I mean, imagine your uncle Stuart or whatever saying like, hey, what does it take to build an app? And just sitting, thinking about how far he's going to need to come to get all the skills necessary to make that happen. You know, I mean, to a lesser extent, there's not quite that much there in design, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's, it's a trade that takes a lot of work. So I think, you know, step one is kind of allowing yourself to go through that process of learning about it, of really getting into the head of design. And, and, you know, there's techniques involved, there's context, there's theory, there's all this stuff. And it doesn't have to be that complicated, but just, you know, acknowledging that 
it is something that'll take you a little bit of time. And if you set out to do it, I think it's something that's within any developer to do just because, like I said, there's so much around the problem-solving aspect of stuff, you know, tying every decision you're making back to some underlying problem is something that you guys do in code all the time, right? Right. Um, so I think, like, a helpful place to start if you've decided, okay, I want to improve my design. Um, and, you know, obviously saying, like, I, I don't want to be a kick-ass designer in a year because some people can pull that off. I certainly didn't pull that off. Um, but it's going to take some time. But I think, you know, once you've set down that path of, okay, I'm going to become not necessarily a designer but better at design, it's time to start really thinking analytically about design. You know, why did they lay this out this way? Why... You know, look at good examples of design and kind of deconstruct it a bit to decide, you know, try to guess what solutions they were trying to, you know, choose with that. And sometimes it is intuition. Sometimes people did stuff straight from the hit and off their gut. But a lot of times the good design is done for a certain reason. So I think, you know, forcing yourself to get into design uh, in an analytical way, not just in a subconscious way of just absorbing good design, you know, really thinking about the choices that were put into it is kind of going to get you down that way. And then once you do that, you know, it's a matter of getting the technique to do it, you know, going to a site like 365 PSD and getting some PSDs to start poking through and seeing how people did stuff. You know, there's lots of ways you can decide to kind of hone that craft. But, you know, you've just got to be willing to suck for a while because like all things, you know, it takes a while. I think there's that great Ira Glass quote about, you know, designers get into creative work because they have good taste, but there's that period at the beginning where their taste doesn't quite match their output because they're not quite good enough yet. And a lot of people quit because they haven't suffered through that period of what what you're putting out doesn't match your taste. And, you know, for a lot of developers too, we may have to work on our taste. You know, it's something that we've kind of just allowed other people to offsource and not have to think about. But I mean, aesthetics is something so common to everybody. Everyone has an opinion about design. You know, I, I learn that painfully every time I go into a stakeholder meeting with people. But, um, you know, it's something you can hone and it's something you can definitely get to a point where it's more consistent and more repeatable in your process. Yeah, I think you brought up a lot of great points on that answer. And the one that really rang true with me is the deconstructing other people's designs. And that I love on the web how you can do that so easily. You know, you can go to a site you really like and what I'll do, like I'll check out the CSS and like look at the hex values of like the, the colors that they're using. And like one thing I learned from that is that you don't ever, like most designers don't ever use true black. They'll use, you know, the hexadecimal value of ones or one, two, one, two, you know, something that's real close to black, but never true black. You know, you never want to go just all the way white, all the way black, all the way full blue. You know, they're always like these subtle, like these are not things you'd like mathematically just guess. You know, you'd think like they're absolutes, but like the design is not in those absolute ranges. It's in the middle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that just goes back to things like contrast, you know, having command of how far of a range, the kind of the densities of colors you're using go and things like that. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, picky little technical things, but I think most people arrive at that just trying to, nail stuff that's that feels right you know and i think the web's progressed to a point with design now to where there's a lot more of that you know a lot of people's output on the web is matching some of the quality that's outside of the web which has been pretty cool right uh another thing i noticed when i got the and i really liked that i did this with talentopoly i i paid for a designer a really top-notch designer that i found on dribble to do the design but i sliced up all of his psds and actually built the front end for it 
which gave me the chance to really like feel like, you know, live through his designs through the hours and hours I spent slicing it up and, and putting it into Talonopoly. And like, I saw a lot of little things like I had always just done, oh, I think this needs six pixel padding or margin all the way around it. And none of his stuff ever had a uniform padding around. It would have eight picks top bottom <laughs> and six picks left right. And I think that non-uniform stuff seems more natural because in nature, things aren't perfectly uniform like that. And, and that, you know, when you see things like that, it, it seems to me to, more natural means more aesthetically beautiful. So another example is like I, I used to like 3D graphics a lot. And when they would tell you to in the tutorial to model somebody's face, like a really high quality version of somebody's like a human face that you might see in a 3D animated video. They're never really just mirroring the left side and then or the right side and then mirror it over. Because you're going to get that the same exact look on each side of the face, and nobody's face is the same on each side. So you've got to mirror. You've got to do those inconsistencies so that you don't just have a mirror. That's kind of how I thought of. It's weird, but that's how I thought about the margin and the padding. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're spot on. So some of that stuff, like I'm trying to really like take that in and notice those things, and like, oh, I need to start thinking more in inconsistencies and not so mathematical and. My complementary colors shouldn't just be a 20% hue difference in Photoshop and then grab that hex. You know, I should actually, like, really try to dig deeper and, and try to come up with better color palettes that aren't just based on my analytical and scientific sense. Yeah, and a lot of the problem, too, is, you know, as developers, we try to abstract something into a pattern that we can reproduce. And sometimes that can become dangerous because if you just, you know, something smells like a certain scenario and you always apply your pattern solution to that scenario, it's not always going to work the same way. You know, there's just so many constraints in the web particularly, but just in design, you know, I, I've talked about it a couple of times already, but it's really just more about the problem solving. So, you know, not getting too bogged down in the technique, not getting too bogged down into kind of what's your quote unquote toolkit, you know, what can you do easily, but really thinking about, the problem and, and how to best solve that problem and letting the form of whatever you decide to do, you know, kind of solve that problem in a novel form while pulling from, you know, this perspective you've gained from looking outside of a design and looking at good design and kind of knowing the different ways of, uh, you know, executing that in a novel way. So what programs should I, as a developer who knows nothing about design, what programs should I reach for first? Well, I think the first thing you should reach for is sitting back in your chair and thinking a little bit about it. So, you know, when you, when faced with a design problem, you know, it, it's kind of the, it's a crutch to just dig right in to start designing it immediately. So, you know, I think a great place to start is honestly on pen and paper. You know, when it comes time to think about designing a particular component or a particular layout for something, you know, starting something kind of low fidelity and just allowing yourself to think a little bit more abstractly about the problem helps a lot. Um, for me, when it comes time to do uh, actual design, you know, I, I just grew up with Photoshop and that's the tool I know, you know, and there's great designers like Raji and other people that really do fireworks. There's great people like Ryan Putnam that do only illustrator. So, you know, I think, having a tool that you're comfortable with is one of the important parts just because, you know, then you can output what you're seeing in your head or whatever. But um, at the same time, you know, I think Photoshop's a great one to start with just to get bang for your buck. And in these days, there's so many freebie PSDs out there and, you know, you can kind of just play CSI on other people's stuff in a way that's really helpful for 
kind of picking stuff apart and learning some of these ticks and tricks. You know, if you see something you like, you can then see, well, how do they do that? So looking at the layer styles, looking at the vector shapes, all that good stuff. What do you think, Brandon? What program should I concern myself with in the beginning? Um, or should I? Should I Should I just not worry about graphic design programs and just stick to a, a text editor no, and a browser? You know what? And- I, I think with, um, with, with where CSS is going, mm-hmm. the, the amount of stuff you can do in CSS 3 uh, is, is pretty amazing now that I think that that might be, that might be a place that a lot of developers could get comfortable with. Again, if you start paying attention to the padding, right? Developers have a horrible time with that, that, that their paddings are always just all mangled, right? Mine are never accurate, but they're at least, they, they pass the sniff test where developers fuck it up all the time. Mm-hmm. But if you start paying attention to font sizes and you start paying attention to all the subtle details, I mean, you can have gradients now, you can have, you know, subtle drop shadows. You can start doing those things, um, that you might be able to, you might feel more comfortable doing it in there uh, yeah i mean you know, I, take take a I design and try to and try to copy it in css i i found that to be like insanely beneficial it seems like there's like you were saying justin there are a lot of psds to go out there and find and, and use as a base it seems like if i want a css3 button you know there's quite a few th- tutorials and snippets i can go grab to start me on that path too or, you know, what I do a lot, just right-click, web inspect, and check it out, you know. I mean, that's one of the nice things, as you mentioned, about the web, is it's just it's already there for you to look through. So learning from people and what CSS code they use to get particular executions is really helpful, too. I think that's a great point, Brandon, about, you know, the code is, is certainly a, a comfortable place for a lot of developers. So getting more onto that side is a really good kind of, a, you know, easy entry way of, of starting to design a little bit more. What sites do you guys use to, or what did you use in the beginning to learn how to design? And nowadays, what do you use to inspire yourself and continue to, to educate yourself? I mean, I think my first Photoshop was version three. So pretty much poking around, reading the manual or buying whatever Sam's Club book was popular is kind of how I got my, uh-huh. um, these days there's just, so many sites that just have a lot of technique, a lot of stuff like that. Um, as far as inspiration, I think I mentioned before, you know, I kind of, yeah, I like dribble a lot. I like, you know, some of these lovely UI details, stuff like that. Sites like that are nice to look at. But for me, I think I, I get the most inspiration these days looking outside of design just because, you know, I, I'm always afraid of, of being too trendy and true to kind of of the now if, you, if you're only looking at websites you know so i like to kind of draw in from other spots what about site well first brandon do you have a response to that before i cut you off yeah no i um uh, a lot of the stuff that i'll copy people that i like i'll just i'll constantly be checking out you know what these various people are doing and 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 so that's one but uh, reddit too i find and hacker news you know i'll go through those sites and you know when a lot of people are launching new sites you start getting an influx and you start really being able to see where designs are going and stuff so you know that's that's most of mine i i, I don't do drill enough probably because i'm never there honestly i'm maybe there once a month what about sites that have uh, either free and, or paid resources, like sites that list fonts or sites that have icon sets or texture packs? Do you guys seek those out or do you find those useful? Subtle patterns is one for me. I like that. I like subtle patterns. I use that. 
that's what I used for the Indie Hack Day website that I did, and it definitely sped things up. And it, to me, it helped constrain it too, because Subtle Patterns doesn't have just an infinite number of patterns on there. It's actually less than you'd think they would have, uh, or at least it's fewer than I thought they would have. Yeah. And so I really like force myself to spend like I'll set a constraint ahead of time to say in the next five minutes I'm going to choose the two patterns that I need for my Indie Hack Day website. I'm going to limit it to five minutes, whichever ones I, I can play with like probably 10 in that time and see which one I like real quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Constraints are really important because I mean, there's so many options with design. You could literally design anything for a page. So giving yourself some constraints really helps out. I think I find as far as the available resources and stuff like that, I use it very heavily in prototyping. So I've got several icon sets I've purchased. You know, I, my wife would probably freak out if she knew how much I've spent in fonts over the years. <laughs> so but, where do you what, – what icon sets? I, you know, I'd love to get some really great icon sets. What do you like? Um, you know, the, the Drew Wilson Picto stuff, it's just so comprehensive. I use it all the time. Absolutely. Hey, have, you ever, have you ever interacted with him? Yeah. yeah we, we actually met him at uh, ValueCon. Was he, a, was he a dick? But he's like the complete opposite of a dick in person. Yeah, no, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Again, I love his work, and and I always praise him every chance I get. Um, but like, I I've tried. I communicate with him a few times, and it was just like, oh, yeah, like phenomenal designer, but socially uh, online, uh, socially uh, inept. But yeah, I love his work. Yeah, actually, I met Drew at South by Southwest a couple of years back, and it was really funny because we were in a group of people, and somebody made the comment like man, I thought you were going to be a dick because your Twitter avatar was like half your face or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was a really cool guy. And I mean, obviously at, at Valley of Con, he's really gracious because that was kind of his show. But yeah. um, like super nice. For me these days, I tend to gravitate towards the minimal icons, you know, the one color stuff, because it's so easy to just, if you need a particular execution or aesthetic, you can just layer style on top of those vector shapes and do what you need. And um, as far as like how often I use that in production sites, I think it really depends on budget. You know, I think a lot of times you get a better output if you've got the budget to really do custom stuff. But, you know, it doesn't always make sense to do custom icons for literally everything. And I mean, how many times do you design an X or a check mark? You know, it's, it's nice to be able to pull from some of those things sometimes too. Right. What types of fonts have you bought? Like, where do you buy the fonts, I guess, is the better question. Uh, for me, anything Hoffler puts out, I'll buy and feel guilty, but then love it because I just use it all the time. And you know, Hoffler and uh... I'm sorry. No, that was me. That was me uh, 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 laughing approvingly. <laughs> nice. So, like, how much do those go for? Just to give me an idea. Uh, you know, for good ones, you're talking about hundreds, and, and for most well-designed types with lots of weights, you know, true italics, things like that, they're, they're usually in the you know, 50 to several hundred range. Uh, I, I tend to go to sites like Veer a lot. Uh, you work for them has some pretty nice low entry stuff. I think for developers, particularly um, the lost type co-op that's popped up in the last uh, probably a year or so from uh, uh, some of those guys that do a lot of font designs on dribble and stuff like that, Riley and uh, uh, those other guys. I mean, that's, that's a really great site because they're really high quality. You know, they're not going to be as rigid as some of the commercial fonts because there's not a lot of weights and, you know, you'll, you'll run into parts with uh, accent characters and stuff like that that's not there. But they're really aesthetically strong fonts and you can get them for next to nothing. It's pretty much like an honor system, pay however much you think this is worth. So, wow. you know, I, I see those fonts popping up all over the 
this now, even in like, you know, commercial work with KFC and Coca-Cola and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. What about Font Squirrel? Have you ever checked that out? I have. You know, it reminds me a lot of there's a site called DA Font way back in the day. Yeah, the font. I've been there. (laughs) I knew better. That was my go-to place for not paying money for fonts. Mm Mm-hmm. And they but, always they always look like shit, you know. The, the, oh, the, and it and it and you can't figure out why, but they all look like shit. Yeah, something just a little bit off about every one of them. But no, Font Squirrel is actually great, and they do some really nice stuff with uh, enabling web fonts. Also, right. I yeah, am these, trying to use web fonts a lot more. I really I'm trying to get away from embedding my custom fonts into the image and try to do them as a web font now. Yeah, and I mean, special now that Retina is coming of age, it's just going to be one of those things where, you know. The, the less you can depend on raster images, the better, because it's just going to be a nightmare, both in bandwidth and in just practicality to depend on that stuff. Yep. Oh, oh, hey, uh, what do you think about uh, the Retina display and how that's going to affect design? I'm kind of terrified of it. <laughs> you know, yeah, me too, man. Another sort of series of practices I'm going to have to train myself on. Um, part of me is excited about it because... You know, on a couple of recent projects, I've used a lot of SVG, and you know, I've kind of manually hinted some of the vectors so it looks good at 100% or whatever, and that's kind of tedious. So, you know, imagining a world where vector graphics look super crisp and you don't have to worry about manually hinting all the points and stuff like that, um, I'm pretty excited about that. But until we get there, which is going to be a while, it's going to be tough because I mean you make a retina version of a graphic, you're going to double the size or even worse. And, um, you know, bandwidth hasn't scaled to double yet. So it's it's some of those concessions when you start designing sites for retina. Yeah. And a really cool site for that. We talked about recently is tiny PNG that you can go there and, and compress your PNG files to incredibly small sizes without really losing much. It's on my computer and I pop up terminal and do it all the time. Awesome. So are there any parting words of wisdom that you two want to uh, leave us with on this topic before we jump into the (laughs) links? Don't listen to anything I say. (laughs) Standard Brandon wisdom there. (laughs) No, I just, I want to fall back on saying, you know, acknowledging as someone who does kind of both sides that design can be a little intimidating and you might feel like you kind of just don't have that eye or, you know, it's, it's too, whatever it is that designers do, you just can't wrap your head around. But I think, you know, if you resolve yourself to getting better at it and kind of acknowledging the commonalities between it, both in terms of, you know, the analytical thought that goes behind some of the problem solving and just some of the technique stuff. I mean, honestly, as much as design on the web is going into code these days, in a lot of ways, developers have a lot of best practices that designers don't. So, you know, just getting your taste and your output kind of on par with uh, some of the other seasoned designers is going to let you do it. And I think there's plenty of tools out there on the internet. If you really want to say this is the year, I'm going to stop, you know, putting crappy padding on stuff and picking weird colors and stuff like that. You know, you can do that with the resources that are out there. It just takes kind of a concerted effort and then, you know, the stomach to suffer through your bad designs for a while because, I mean, that's just the way it is. Excellent. I like that. Thank you. So let's jump into some Talonopoly links here. These are some interesting links that have been posted on the site over the last two weeks. We've got five of them for you during this episode. And number one is software inventory. First, I just want to say I am so happy that Joel Spolsky of Joel on Software 
is blogging again. He said that he was kind of done doing his software blogs, which have just been every time he does one, it's a seminal post that everybody in the development community always refers to. And it's just so needed in the community to have a voice like this. And now he's back. He's been doing a couple of them. This one is about uh, about tickets piling up in your ticket system. And tickets could be bugs or features that you want to build, whatever it is. He's talking about the real cost of having a, a big in, keeping a big inventory of this stuff around. Uh, did you guys get a chance to check this article out? Chirp, chirp. Nope, guess not. Sure. So, let me let that's that's fine. Let me walk you through it. Let me tell you a little bit here. So he's talking. He first off, they've launched a software product called Trello, and Trello is a little bit like Pivotal Tracker in that it allows you to do uh, Kanban style. I think is how you say it. Project management, and that's where you have columns of these tickets, and they move th- from column to column. They graduate through the different columns. Pivotal has the simple icebox, and then backlog, and then what you're currently working on. And what Joel talks about is just the software process, which is the, he he outlines it as a six point process, which is the decision-making process, which is you ask yourself the question, should we implement this feature? A design process where you do specs and whiteboards and mockups. Then the implementation process where you're actually writing the code. Then you need to test it. So you're going to be finding bugs. You need to debug that. So then you have a debugging process, which is again, fixing bugs. And then a deployment process, which is sending code to customers, putting it on the web server, whatever. And at every one of those steps, you're most likely creating tickets in your ticket system, whether it be bugs, features, chores, whatever it is. And that's going to get out of hand pretty quickly for most teams. I think it, you know most people can identify with at least one project that they've worked on where they ended up with at some project they either like started on and it was, you know, it grew to hundreds or they, they joined a team where they already had a ticket system with hundreds of tickets in it. Have you guys had this experience before? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it sucks, right? when you have hundreds of tickets piled up, that's not a good thing. And so, I've actually had a chance to use Trello on a couple of clients and it's, it's slick stuff. I like that process a lot. You like it? Have you used Pivotal Tracker before? Yeah, although it was with a group that weren't necessarily doing Agile, so um, it just ended up being kind of a general purpose tracker, and that was fine too. Right. But yeah, but, uh, it, was, it was pretty granular, and I kind of liked the the bigger picture stuff that Trello seems to do. So his suggestions here is he's got three of them. Use a triage system to decide if a bug is even worth recording. Don't put every single thing into the ticket system. I think a lot of teams fall into this feeling like it is a best practice to make sure everything is recorded in there. And that actually will swamp you in the end. Do not allow more than two weeks in fixed time of bugs to get into the bug database. Once, If you have more than that, stop and fix bugs until you feel like you're fixing stupid bugs. Then close all of the rest of the bugs as won't fix. Everything left in the database, just close them out. And he says, don't worry, the severe bugs will come back and you can log them again. So don't try to map out like a year or two's worth of tickets in there because it's, just, it's going to make it really hard to see what you actually should be working on or to even see if you're creating duplicate tickets. You're just not, after a while, you're going to be blind to all of those old tickets and they're just creating a cost to you of using that ticket system. So that's, that's his post. If you want to really dig into more of what he's saying, I recommend going and checking that out. It's a great post about ticket systems. Hmm. All right, link number two. Test iPhone slash iPad apps on Windows. And this is uh, the fine folks over at Trigger.io. They created a cross-platform app development toolkit. 
and they have a nice little service because currently if you're doing iOS development, at some point you're going to need to do that on a Mac, the, at least the final piece of it, because you need to sign your application before you submit it to the store. And to sign it, you generally need to do that in Xcode. But what these guys have done is they've created, or and we have talked about Brandon, I don't know if you remember, it was probably almost a year ago now, but there's a service out there where you can rent a Mac in the cloud. Do you recall? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what the hell was the name of that? Yeah, I don't remember, but I actually have a friend that I recommended that to because he just was not going to go out and even buy like a Mac Mini, which honestly, if you're doing iOS development and you think that it's a really good application, you're going to try to make thousands off of it or, you know, for whatever yeah, reason. Yeah, get on, get on fucking Craigslist and go buy yourself one for 300 bucks. Exactly. That's my feeling on it. But if you really must avoid that, you can either rent a Mac in the cloud or you can use this toolkit which this is more of a cross-platform type of toolkit that compiles down. It's HTML5 stuff that compiles down into the native apps, so probably not for everybody. But the cool thing is they created this service that allows their toolkit to reach out and sign the application, and then you get that signed application right back, and you never at any time had to go onto a Mac to do this. So you can rejoice in being able to avoid the Mac OS and Xcode and staying completely on Windows to do this. You know, I I I played around with the uh, trigger stuff uh, a couple last couple weeks ago, and it's it is it's pretty it's pretty slick. Uh, my only concern is is that your entire application is basically tied to this company. Mm-hmm. That when when they go away, or if they get bought, or if something happens, like you know their their term basically says, oh no, if we get bought, everything will be cool. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I don't know if I buy that shit. Yeah. And they do have their they have pricing on here as well. Yeah. So it starts yeah. off. Yeah. So you free. can yeah you can go free and and so you can get pretty damn far on the free, but still. It's basically if you want support in the webinars, then you can go pro, which is three hundred a month, and then there's enterprise, of course. So yeah, I mean, is it open source? Probably no, not. no, 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 no. Yeah. So again, it, so there there are the parts that make all the magic happen. Um, uh, it's, and it's kind of like titanium, right. Or, uh, titanium mobile where, mm-hmm. where, you know, each of the, they have their own, you know, JavaScript calls that you, you call to then trigger the, you know, when it gets compiled down into the native stuff. Uh, so, I mean, you could probably port all of it when it's all said, no, but it's still, I, I don't like that, but Hey, I, whatever. Yeah, I'm an probably, idiot. I'd probably, and I have not looked at this, but I, I like the phone gap way of doing it and it allows me to choose whatever JavaScript framework I really want. And yeah. And it, you know, I know that I'm not really beholden to anybody doing it that way, but yeah, I think it's cool that they're trying to do this and trying to, I know that there are a bunch of guys out there on, on windows that would like to do an iOS application and they really lament the fact that at one point or another, they have to use a Mac and Anybody that can create a workaround for that is probably going to find a niche. Link number three, Stephen Hay presents responsive design workflow. Uh, this is a really neat article, actually, that talks about how he goes through some stuff in here, first off, that how to adapt your workflow to, to doing responsive design. And then he actually goes through his exact workflow, which I always love seeing how other people work. That's really insightful to me. And, and helps me iterate on my workflow. So let me give you a flavor for how he does it. 
He starts off with the content inventory, which seemed like a really neat way to think about it. Establish and describe the content, because this gives you a few raw, your raw materials. And I like that because it constrains things. And we talked about that a little bit earlier of having constraints in your design. I like constraints when I'm developing as well, when I'm architecting. So start off with what the actual content is that you're going to be putting up on the screen. And then he does say do some rough responsive wireframes, but he does them in HTML so that he can do really fast iterations. Design in text is number three. That would be the structured content. So establishes the content hierarchy and structure, and you can easily revise it because it's all being done in HTML. So he's not actually advocating doing it on paper. And then he's saying do a linear design. So test out the plain Jane structured content in HTML in the browser. And then start trying it at different sizes. So display visually where the breakpoints happen. So as you resize your browser, oh, it broke, at, you know, whatever the size is. Okay, so now you have to start designing for those breakpoints. So start with the small screen first and then expand it until it looks like shit. Time for a breakpoint, which I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And then he says, okay, now do an HTML design prototype. So if we're not delivering designs in Photoshop, what do we deliver? Clients want Photoshop because they're used to it, but create HTML, CSS, and maybe a bit of JavaScript. And now you'll probably get a lot better reception from that deliverable because they can actually see it and interact with it right in their browser, which is pretty damn cool. And then they, he says, present the prototype screenshots and then present the prototype after revisions and document for production. But basically, he's just describing how he starts with the content inventory, which is what I really took away is like the that was the big value from reading this for me, thinking about it in that form first. And that to me is tied to also the value proposition of the site because ultimately it's about the content that's on the site. Or if it's a web app, it could be the content plus the functions that are on the site. So start listing those first, and it, that constrains it for you. And then don't try to design at once for all the different screen sizes. Try designing for just large desktop first, then try the smallest, and then deal with the in-betweens. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, especially with the content inventory, I mean, kind of the traditional way before design really matured, you would kind of design the skeleton of a page and then you would just chunk your ads and your content and all that stuff in there. And usually the best way to design something is designing it for the content that's going to be inside of it. So that kind of like content up way of doing stuff, I mean, that, that'll really reap benefits in the designs. And I also love all the stuff about prototyping in HTML because honestly, that's just, that's where it makes sense to do stuff. I mean, there's something to be said for showing somebody a really polished, you know, mock-up from Photoshop or something like that. But, you know, I've had, before I started designing and prototyping more in HTML, there would be so many times I'd show a client something and I'd have to say like, oh yeah, but if you click that button, this little thing's going to happen and maybe I made a screen for that. Usually I didn't. And I would try to explain to them what I was trying to get across and it wouldn't come across. So it's so nice, you know, especially because of CSS maturing that you can do a lot of that stuff straight in the HTML and let them, you know, that's your kind of lo-fi mock-up that has a little bit of interactivity to it too. Right. Do you do your mock-ups in HTML, Brandon? Mock-ups? I don't do mock-ups. <laughs> I just create. I do final production <laughs> I work. I do final production work. And then I say, what do you think? And they say, I don't like this. and Because I don't like to give them choices. And so the more I get shit done, the, le- the then they're like, uh, I don't, I, I, uh, can we change the hue of blue? Right? So I, I just try to overwhelm them and then move on with my life. Well, and that, that kind of it. I mean, the... The world between mock-up and production really blurs when you're doing your mock-ups in HTML already. 
Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, honestly, yeah, I, I, I would send them, I, most of the time I would do my mock-ups, you know, in, in fireworks or, and send it to them and then say, you know, but most of the time it's done. I, so I, I don't do it. I don't know. I'm not even why I'm talking. Go on. <laughs> I love it. Such classic Brandon. All right. Link number four, set text on a circle. This is a, this is a great article up on CSS tricks. And I swear that this guy, Chris Coyer, if that's how, if I'm mispronouncing the last name, that's, I, I mispronounce everybody's last name. So sorry about that. But <laughs> uh, he, this guy, I swear, he just spends all day just figuring out how to do all kinds of nifty things in CSS just so he can tell the rest of us. I love this. It's like the ultimate show and tell. And so he's come up with a way to, to and it, it, it's got a lot involved in doing it. But if you really want to do this, you can do it. You can have text set around some kind of circular badge or icon or whatever it is you're doing. And just allow you to do yet even more in CSS. Now, this is this right now. It might seem all technical, but in in five years, you're going to have everything that you were able to do in Illustrator, and you'll be able to do it completely on the browser. And it's going to leverage a lot of these ideas and a lot of these solutions these dudes came up with. And it's going to be fucking awesome. So I don't think I'll ever use it in this instance, but now I can do wrap text to path. I mean, that's sweet. Well, and yeah, and I just actually. Uh, speaking of learning Photoshop a little bit, I just learned how to do that for something my wife needed done. She needed some stamps for some envelopes where we had to do the wrap text around in a circle on the path. And like, you know, welcome to the party, Jared. I learned how to do that for the first time just like last week. This is, this, is, this is where our sound effects would go off, by the way. <laughs> but to me, and here's a little bit of a tangent, but I want to get your guys' opinion on this. What do you think of how Adobe seems to be centering themselves in this world of uh, CSS design using their new graphical, uh, you know, I guess IDEs or their new graphics programs that can output CSS. Do you think that you would do this by hand in CSS or could you see yourself using some Adobe product to do this? <laughs> Just <laughs> Justin? Well, you know, I've never been a WYSIWYG guy. So, you know, I use Dreamweaver, but I only use the code editor in it, you know, before I found better code editors and stuff like that. So I think for me, I would have a hard time trusting it uh, to really output kind of like the, the the brevity I wanted in the output and kind of the quality too. I'm, I'm too much of a control freak to do that. I mean, that said, we're kind of at a part where, or a point where a lot of this stuff is pretty tedious. You know, if you want to do a lot of these advanced effects and animations in the CSS, it can be tedious and you're handling a lot of, vendor prefixes if you don't do SAS or less or something like that. So I can see the benefit of it. I just, I'm too much of a control freak to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, I see a future where I think Adobe can find a community uh, of customers that want that, where they can say, I'm going to do this set text to path in Photoshop. And then instead of outputting to PNG, I want to output to CSS. It's not going to be Adobe. All right, Adobe's going to try and they're going to fail miserably at it. But it, the next generation, uh, they're going to start building stuff and they're going to start building shit that's actually pretty good and they're not going to be doing it in code and it's going to drive people like me and be probably people like Justin absolutely insane because it's like you, you guys don't know how to design, right? I mean, you're now producing this amazing shit and it's all drag and drop and it's accurate and it works on all browsers and all the shit that we hoped WYSIWYG was going to be, you know, fucking 10 years ago. And and it's going to drive us all crazy. <laughs> and we're all going to be old and be bitching about it. Yep. Excellent. 
All right, our last link is mockups. It's M O Q U P S, Vectorial Mockups. This is a web app that allows you to do balsamic style mockups, it looks like. I haven't really played with it, I just checked out the website here. I really like that when you go to the web address, it immediately pops you right into the web app and you're just ready to start designing. And you can just start grabbing some rectangles and throwing them over in there, some headers, and oh, I need a drop down, and just start throwing all your stuff on there. And then when you want to go to save it, you can create an account. I could not find any pricing information. So as far as I could tell, this is free, at least for now. This is completely free. So a great alternative to Balsamic. And it's got layers. You can arrange stuff. You can align, group things. You can lock stuff down. Seemed fairly full-featured for doing some quick mock-ups that you could share with people. Do you guys use any mock-up tools like this? Or like, I, I guess what I feel like we're just talking about HTML and CSS as mock-ups. Is yeah. that just completely no. one at this point? Would you use something like this? Uh, you know, I would. Yeah. I would. Uh, I mean, it, again, it kind of just depends on the on if someone's like, hey, I need an idea of how to like lay out this information. Then I'll go and I'll throw it around and I'll, I'll use something like that just to get it done and off my plate. Instead of paper? You wouldn't use paper instead of this? I don't use paper anymore. Justin, what about you? I mean, what's what's what would make you give up paper, or would do they have to pry it from your cold, dead hands? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do it because it's comfortable, but at the same time, I use you know I use Mockingbird a lot, uh, which is a from the looks of it a very similar kind of just drag and drop uh, kind of thing. And I mean, there's there's values to it. There's something to be said that you know once once you put something on the page it's not necessarily immutable and you can easily move it around and change the size and stuff like that right. i think it depends on you know what phase you're in what do you feel like using you know a kind of whatever tool or whatever you know place i'm at is is usually what i reach for but i think a lot of times you know i have some customer or clients that don't necessarily want a sketch, you know, they, they might want something that feels a little bit more polished so that, you know, they don't feel like their hourly is being wasted on me or something. <laughs> uh, hey, I, j- I just ran out of my office and, and grabbed my iPad because I wanted to tell you guys about an app that I use. Excellent. Uh, it, it's called Interface HD. And it, it uh, I'm sorry, I'm sitting angled because I, I, as I ran out, I just cut my toe open. Um, oh, <laughs> But it, it's, it's an iPad app that lets you build both iPad and iPhone kind of uh, mock-ups and flows. And you can actually make buttons that are interactive and say, when they click here, go to this screen, do this, do this, do this. And, and then you can export it as um, a nib. Hmm. And so you can, you can export it and, and send it, and they can open it up in Xcode, and there's all the interface and mock-up and stuff. That is pretty awesome. Dude, it's it's pretty badass. So, so you know, uh, my boss is like, I got this great idea for this app, like he always does. And I'm like, all right, let me go. Uh-huh. Let, me, I'll, I'll let me go to see. And I just I built it out on this and was able to say here, and he could almost he could play with it. And it's, and it's using all the native UI stuff. And it was like, oh, holy shit. So it, it's a killer. It really is a killer app for, for doing uh, iOS stuff. And you didn't feel handicapped having to? Did you use your finger or a stylus for? I uh, use my use you use my finger. And you don't feel handicapped and, like placing stuff just right where you want on a. No, touchpad. no, 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 because it it does the alignment and stuff where it, uh, it like it'll snap to the different positions of stuff. Um, it it integrates with Dropbox. So you can just be dragging your images and shit into Dropbox and have it automatically be able to be accessible. I mean, it is a killer uh, mock-up tool. Why not just use uh, Xcode? Because I'm a hack, dude. 
I'm just I'm trying to get the other perspective here. Well, no, because because I don't want to be an Xcode. Okay. Yeah. Or maybe I, you're on I, Windows I, I, as your main OS, or yeah, no, I just want to do it on my iPad. I don't want to waste the time. I want to be able to sit down and be like, okay, this is a stupid thing anyway. I'm just kind of playing around, and and I can throw it all together. But then if I want to say, you know what? Hey, actually, I want to turn this now into an app. I export it to Xcode, and I bloop, and then I get in there and I do all my my nerdery. Excellent. And that was Interface HD. Yep. What Interface. Did, what did it HD. cost? I, you know, I don't know. I think it might have been nine ninety nine. Okay, that's not too bad. Yeah, and I've got to give a shout out to Envision App also because I've I've used that on a couple of projects now, and I'm I'm pretty in love with it. It's a uh, it's a website that allows you to kind of drop in images and then create clickable areas that transition between them, so you can kind of build semi interactive mockups using oh, whatever. I love it. And it's been pretty cool, you know, for those projects where I need a pretty high level of fidelity in the mockups. Um, it's nice to give them that website and have them click around on it and have it behave sort of like a, a pretty reasonable functioning mock-up. So I, I like that one a lot too. Yeah, I kind of think of those as like the new hallway usability test instead of having, oh, you clicked on that, here's this piece of paper. I like doing what you're describing a little bit better where they can actually sit down and immerse themselves into the computer and click through and experience it in a more natural way. Yeah, and something I like about too, it doesn't you know, presuppose you to use a certain tool, just feed it images and tell it where to click. So I could use fireworks or scan sketches or whatever I wanted to do and right. it'll take care of the rest. Excellent. Well, if you want more great links like what we just talked about, check out townopoly.com. We're, we've got great ones going up all day long being submitted by our talented uh, community members. And you can also sign up for a weekly newsletter that will just send you the top 20 from the last week every Monday morning, which is a great way to start off your week. Thanks for being on the podcast, Justin. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, until next time, keep hacking. <laughs>